Welcome everyone to the Miss Art World podcast. I am your host, Catherine, with my co-host, Samuel. What up, Art World? And today we have Caitlin Mary Margaret with us, who is going to be performing at Satellite with me. Well, not with me. She has her own performance, but she's also performing at Satellite too. <laughs> so welcome, Caitlin. Hello. Um, so Caitlin, you are from... Madison, Wisconsin. Um, you were born and raised there. Oh, not not Wisconsin. Wait, Minnesota? Yeah, I'm kind of like, I'm a Midwesterner in the most liminal sense. Yeah, I was born in Minnesota, but I lived the longest in Iowa. And I just moved to Madison for um, my first year of graduate school, actually. I'm going to UW-Madison. Gotcha, you're getting your MFA in 4D. Yes, yeah. And then you have your BFA in performance art and mm -hmm. a BA in art history from the University of Northern Iowa. Yes. Um, and then most of your, your work is rooted in durational performance practice, but you do, are you currently doing ceramic or is that part of your practice that you've done for a while? Yeah. So, um, I have done ceramics longer than I've done performance. I think I've been a ceramic artist probably for almost a decade now, which um, is kind of weird to think about, but um, I utilize ceramics always in the service of performance. It's never really uh, as a standalone thing. It's always something that I end up making that elevates a performance or serves it. Um, my performances are very object oriented and very much dependent on tools in order to convey certain um, meanings and to create settings. So for a really long time, I was making tile. Um, and for the performance I'm doing in Miami, as well as kind of generally, I've moved into these huge like bodily vessels that are about the size of my torso. That you make out of ceramic? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no so, yeah. So it's like these big stoneware uh, vessels that I wrap my tiny little arms around and carry around. And they usually have something in them. Um, I've recently been filling them with kind of brackish, dirty water um, and moving them in video pieces, moving them through prairies and polluted areas that are supposed to be protected by the city, but haven't been um, the city being the places I have been living. Um, and in this newer work that's going to be at Miami, it's going to be very much in that vein, uh, but, but yeah, but we can get there. We can uh, slowly meander our way towards that, I suppose. And you're performing December 4th on Saturday at 2 p.m. Um, again, it's at the Satellite Art Show in Miami with Performances Alive. Um, so I don't know if we want to talk about your history first or if we want to talk about the performance that's coming up. Let's talk about performance and then go back. Go okay. Back. <laughs> Um, do you want to share a little bit about the concept of the performance that you are are doing um, coming up? Yeah, so um, this piece is called For the Love of God, which is kind of tongue-in-cheek in the sense that um, I say that a lot, usually in exasperation, um, 
And especially when I'm uh, reading about really poor city management and really poor city management policy, um, especially around uh, where I had been previously living, uh, which was Cedar Rapids, Iowa, uh, they had sold 20,000, or not 20,000, forgive me, they had sold 20 acres of prairie to this company in this area that they had rezoned from being a prairie pollinator zone to being an industrial zone so that they could put a rail yard in. And I think over the last year, it was just so many people, including myself, like screaming into the night, just like for the love of God, why? this is such poor city management. This area floods every single year. <laughs> why would you do this? Um, and also 20 acres of prairie eradicated. Um, so the idea behind uh, the work really is rooted in this area being destroyed, but also the 2020 deratio, which totally decimated where I was living. Um, Cedar Rapids in August, I think it was August 10th of 2020, was hit by this massive windstorm called a deratio that blew through. Um, it was like 140 mile per hour winds. It was basically a land hurricane and it got no coverage because it was the height of the election season. Mm. So 93% um, of the homes in Cedar Rapids had significant damage. Uh, Iowa lost 7 million uh, trees. Uh, we lost like- Wow, that's a lot of trees. That's a lot of trees. We yeah. lost 37% like of our tree canopy uh, in our urban tree canopy. I think, I, I don't have the exact number, but I think Cedar Rapids lost like 400,000 trees. I think it might be higher. But um, so in the performance piece itself, I have audio from uh, my own recordings of sitting in my basement listening to the duration blowover, as well as different clips uh, from media coverage, the very little media coverage that it got, as well as um, some other clips that uh, people had posted that I know. Um, and so I have this audio, this swirling audio playing um, as I move through this space, which has like three intersecting uh, sand rings with a big blue house that hangs in the middle. And I have these big pillar like ceramic forms, which are filled with that brackish water I talked about. Uh, and I basically am going to be slowly flooding the space with this audio playing. Um, and I'm probably, uh, I haven't picked the hymn just yet, but I'm going to be singing a hymn about um, uh, from this Methodist hymnal that I've been using for my 100 days project coming up about God being a gentle and loving God while this audio plays. So um, the work is deeply personal, but it's also fiercely universal, especially as we kind of brace for the climate crisis and it's snowballing. So um, yeah, I'm really excited to be presenting that in a space like Miami because I feel like Florida, if anything, knows what it's like to deal with hurricanes. Um, but I also think, you know, we're used to spaces like Florida having hurricanes and kind of uh, weather that is unpredictable and hard to hard to um, make sense of in terms of its intensity. But we're not used to spaces like Iowa having hurricanes or we're not used to spaces um, like that needing elevation in this very specific way of like this is not this is not normal this is not supposed to be happening 
in, in the Great Plains. So um, I'm excited to be bringing that kind of content to a space like uh, Art Week because I think it's very easy for spaces like that to be kind of saturated with solipsism and kind of the banal in a way that doesn't actually- Can we go back with solipsism? Uh, solipsism, like selfishness and like uh, kind of like the self-absorbed, like we're absolutely doing everything we're supposed to be doing. You know, it's gotcha. uh, very, you know, very like a selfish mode of moving through. Um, Art is an extremely important, and I'm an artist, obviously, but um, I think when we when we make art that is specific to place, we kind of highlight things that desperately need to be highlighted. Um, and I think bringing it to a place like Art Week is a is a good platform for that mm -hmm. kind of content. And then when you say brackish water, is it just dirty looking water or are you actually getting really disgusting water? Um, well, when I, I've performed this piece once before, um, I performed this piece at the Queeramics Symposium at Louisiana State University in 2019. And the water access that I had uh, was through their ceramics um, department and the water just looked really cloudy and gross because it, it had come out of these pipes that were really like coppery mm -hmm. and I was like oh that's really that's really fascinating um, and since then I've been using water that I've pulled straight out of like rivers and out of the Iowa water system so they looked absolutely gnarly um, at uh, at the gallery that we're going to be at I'm presuming that it's not going to be as dirty because of just what I have access to, but, um, and probably what uh, the curator would prefer, but um, I am probably going to mix some of the materials together to give it that illusion, but I, I don't think it's like the most necessary thing because the, the message is pretty overwhelmingly clear. Hmm. Do you, so your ceramics, can they, can you see straight through it to see the water or do you break them so the water floods out? Yeah, so I actually, um, so these big pillar-like things, they're, they're stoneware. So they're, they are colored to match the house that I have floating in the space. Um, and I basically pour out water in the spot that they're standing until I can lift them. And then I move them through the space and I start to, um, eradicate these hard lines that I've made with the sand rings, um, kind of to convey multiple meanings there, but um, these very shifty and like liminal ideas that we have about our own safety and are these systems that we have in place that will protect us, quote unquote. Um, are so easily and quickly eradicated by not that much force really. And um, at Louisiana State, the sand that I had used came from all these sandbags that they had from a recent hurricane. So I'm hoping that I can sort of locally source in, in a similar way at Art Week. I don't know if I will have the ability to, but the hope is that it can come from a similar source. So it's not just, um, so it has that kind of meaning as well, but we shall see what I have access to. Someone somewhere has sandbags, I'm sure. Yeah, it's in Miami. Down there. 
Are you driving there or are you flying? Oh, I'm driving. Okay. I'm driving all the way, baby. Because <laughs> you have all your ceramic and stoneware and stuff, right? Yeah. So uh, from where I live in Wisconsin to uh, the hotel that uh, I got, it is... It says it's 21 hours. I'm gonna bet it's like more 25 with like breaks and stopping and stuff. Um, but I love a good long distance. Um, this last summer, I did a pretty big pilgrimage uh, throughout Iowa for my 100 days project um, where I went to many different sites. So I really love being alone in the car. I know it's not the most efficient way to, to travel um, but I really do love a good long road trip. I think you really learn about yourself <laughs> on the road, but, uh, not to be too like Jack Kerouac about that, but <laughs> I also think, you know, it, you never see the country when you fly. And I really love to see the really strong shift between spaces as you like move through the country. So. Do you listen to music or are you just silently in your car or you uh, podcast you need the visual of your driving <laughs> yeah. i i listen to audiobooks primarily um i try to it's it's so silly i i try to like get through all of the audiobooks that i have been like avoiding pointedly because the narrator bothers me or like you know, I, I know I need to listen to this book and be like fully immersed in this book, but I can't stand how it's being read. And so I try to like, I put them on like two times speed and I listen to them as I like <laughs> Korean through. And if I get really irritated, I usually switch to music, but, um, and I do listen to some podcasts, but uh, usually I'm trying to just like, eat through these books that I have told myself you need to listen to this and I've put off. Nice. Samuel and I both listen to audiobooks, so we totally understand <laughs> a, narr a bad narrator just ruining the whole experience of listening. Exactly and you're like I need to listen to this because I need to be an informed person but good lord uh, who what do you say people? for the love of God for the love of God truly like it is that times 10 100 percent I have a hard time if I listen to it two times speed there's a lot of times I daydream so I'll be driving and then I'll be like oh yeah I'm supposed to be listening and then I'm like I don't have no clue what we're listening to anymore yeah and you know some authors are like such they write so luminously they have this like uh you know incandescent way of writing and then they are the ones reading it and you're like no you should have hired someone you you're killing my experience of your words by you saying them so um i i'm always surprised by by the choices that are made there i wonder how much choice some of those folks have but you know whatever <laughs> probably cheaper for them to do it themselves right or they think they can bring something magical to the experience if they read it themselves but mm -hmm. seldom is that the case <laughs> has your work always focused on the environment or is this a new focus because we're having such global issues with global warming um that's a that's a good question so when i was an undergrad uh I became really kind of obsessive about the crisis that we are facing. 
um, to a point where it was like making me ill as if, if you kind of like research something too much, you'll perhaps be a little bit ill over it, especially if it's something as doom ridden as, you know, our climate crisis. But um, I was making all of this work that was very ecocentric. Um, I was, I took this class with a really amazing professor named Angela Wiseska um, called Eco House. And every aspect of that class, it was a performance uh, based class, but we were creating work in relation to systemic issues um, related to the environment. And I was really in love with that. I was studying um, Anna Mendieta really intensely at the time as you know, someone who was also based in Iowa, um, who uh, really informed and influenced my work. Um, but I also, at the same time as that, I was studying ethics and religion. I have like an unofficial minor in ethics and religions um, because getting that BA in art history, I realized very quickly, oh, I know nothing about religion. I better go and learn about that um, so that I can contextualize uh, all of this art history, uh, which kind of sucked me down this rabbit hole. I was taking this uh, religions and environment uh, uh, environmental ethics course as well, which really kind of was blowing my mind about these different religious ideas um, and ideologies regarding stewardship and what, what ought to be done and what doing good and being good actually looks like in practice within these different faith branches. Um, but that being said, in undergrad, like so many young 20-somethings, I was really like in it and going through it um, as a young person trying to sort out my own uh, shit, you know? And I really needed to hunker down and create work about this um, intense experience that I was having trying to figure out like who I was and what I needed to be. And like, what did, what did I want to create uh, what, like, what do I want to create moving forward? But also, you know, what, what is this space of like constantly just enduring and white knuckling it through the academic process and not just the academic process, but like being a person in the world. Um, and so I made these really huge installations kind of in the vein of Judy Chicago's The Dinner Party. Um, there were these huge tile floors that I had hand pressed and hand painted. Um, and I trained uh, for really brilliant uh, performance artists to sing and um, to uh, perform my work. And that took like four months of training, um, mostly so that they could sustain uh, vocal performance for long periods of time. When you say train, like you're training them to sing or? Yeah, well, okay. it's kind of a combination of like training them to be confident, to make loud not maybe into noise like for long periods of time. And um, my practice uh, is durational. So usually the performances are about two hours, two to four hours is usually my range. And training someone to be able to sustain the same like line from a hymn for two hours as they slowly rise and fall in, in time with this hymn that they're singing all in conjunction it's a lot of it's a lot of like build up you can't just go and do that because um proper vocal 
performance is using a lot of your stomach and a lot of your like chest and nothing up in your uh, throat. Otherwise you'll go hoarse. And so it's really easy to like make yourself ill doing that. So it, it's a lot of like buildup and being able to slowly fall down for two hours. It takes a lot of like getting accustomed to it and getting there. And these artists that I trained were already brilliant to begin with because they already went through that same pro program at UNI, which has a really amazing undergraduate performance program. It's, I would argue, I've never seen anything of its like. It's just so robust. And the students who come through are always a little bit like, what is this? Because they're from Iowa and they don't know. But, um, but it's just truly an, an amazing program. It's really headed by this professor named uh, April Thompson. And uh, she, uh, when I was an undergrad, she was uh, April Piepert, but um, she's truly, she has this way of like shaping young students into just really powerful powerhouse performance artists who really like pull from the gut. And um, so those students had come through that program and they were ready to, to kind of throw whatever I threw at them. And then after that, I went back to my roots in a way where I was really dealing with the environment because I felt like I had kind of like figured some of my shit out. It was like, okay, I can, now that I've dealt with and really like explored, like what is this interpersonal stuff that I'm working with? I can really address these larger issues that I think, again, are like, deeply personal like what is my personal obligations here like what is my role and what am I supposed to be individually doing to kind of push forward a momentum for climate justice and like what does that look like as well as like the universal aspect of that is like what what are all of our responsibilities here like what can we all mobilized to do? And what can my art practice do in order to elevate that content? And then what, because we've been talking about the 100 day challenge, what, what is that exactly? Because I have no idea. Yeah, so um, the 100 days is a project that I've been working on. This is going to be uh, the third year that I'm doing it. It starts again on January 1st. And the 100 days is something that I've been doing where I, for 100 days of the year, I perform every single day and I document it every single day. And the first year that I did it, it was sort of under the skies of like performance a day, like I'll perform every day and I'll figure something out. Um, it was at the very onset of the pandemic and I was trying to desperately figure out um, how to maintain a really strong studio practice. Uh, I was in a ceramics residency at the time and all of us kind of lost access to the studio because we went into shutdown. And so I was like, how can, what does my practice look like now moving forward since I can't be doing what I sort of set out to do? And it was just this way to kind of keep my finger on the pulse of my practice and to figure out what it is that I was interested in doing and they were just exercises but then halfway through the first edition of it I was like oh oh I see what I'm doing I keep going to Anna Mendieta's grave and I keep looking at her 
tombstone and talking to her. I keep going to all of these really rural grave sites and being fascinated by the fact that these unproductive spaces are still cared for by the city or the municipality that it belongs to. I'm really interested in these natural spaces that have started to erode that somehow don't get cared for. <laughs> I'm really fascinated by these lines of convergence that I am now seeing towards the end. And I think of that first 100 days, maybe five of them were really good performances, which is great odds, by the way. Like, that's really <laughs> great. Um, and I was like, I, this was so fruitful. And I learned so much about how I document work and what I like to see and what, what actually is of interest to me. I didn't know until I make it. I think that's like a Joan Didion line. Like, I don't know what I'm thinking until I write it or, or something to that effect. Um, and then the second edition of the 100 days I did 2021. And uh, it was this really weird bridged, I had to break it up almost into two sections because I had to move in the middle of it. The, one of the awful downsides of the Doratio is uh, losing all of that tree canopy means all of the animals that usually roost in the tree canopy suddenly were looking for places to roost and 93% of people had roof damage. So uh, me and everybody else had bat infestations. So I had to move very suddenly in the midst of the 100 days. Um, not pleasant, but you know, whatever. Um, Sounds awful. <laughs> it was really awful. It was really kind of iconic though, because we got this U-Haul and you know how on the U-Hauls they have like all of the different animal prints from like different regions of the country. The U-Haul that we got was covered in bats. <laughs> and I was it's just, just such like, an odd choice. <laughs> I know. And I was just like, and I had just like worked, I was a barista at the time. And like the last tip out that I got had um, on the coins, they had bats. And I was like, what is going on? This is, this is truly like me shouting to the sky for the love of God, what is going on? Um, it was fierce. Anywho's. Um, so I finished the 100 days in Wisconsin, in my, where I live now. Um, I live like right next to Madison, not right in Madison. Um, but I had spent so much of the last 100 days, instead of performing every single day, I was doing material research. And I was doing a lot of deep research into my family. Um, the 100 days has become this interesting investigation of my matrilineal line. And I've been looking at the, the history of the women in my family all the way back to my grandmother's grandmother. Uh, her name is Anna Jakobina Peterson, and she immigrated to the United States in 1886 uh, from Denmark. And my cousin uh, is a news anchor for CNN. And in 2014, CNN was doing this series called like My Roots, and they did a whole special on Anna. And I've always been really fascinated by this like matriarch in my family who like established my family in Iowa and is kind of like both revered and very disliked. And uh, <laughs> it's, she's a really fascinating character to me, especially knowing like she would hate me and that we would not get along, but I'm really fascinated by her. Um, she's like a very hard hearted Christian woman 
who was determined to make good at like any cost uh, to like her family relations. And I knew that she had settled in Council Bluffs, which is like right next to Omaha uh, in Iowa. And it used to be called Little Denmark. It was such a Danish area. And so through all of this research, I found like census records and voting records and marriage certificates and all that. And I found out where her husband had built their home. I found the church that she had attended for 72 years uh, in Iowa. She lived to be way too old, like 92 <laughs> or something. Um, all of the women in my family live way too long, <laughs> which is haunting for me. Um, yeah, good genes, I guess. You'll plan for 92. <laughs> <laughs> those strong Danish genes, baby. Um, just too long. But um, I found all of this information and then I found her daughter's um, gravesite and where she had lived. And uh, I found the homes that my grandmother had lived in as a child and the two homes she owned as an adult. And in the last five days of the 100 days, I basically cut clear across Iowa to go to all of those places. And I documented all of those places and I made a film about it um, as, as you do, um, about just this journey and <clears throat> moving through space and really seeing how kind of absolutely freaky it is that the Iowa that I live in is fundamentally a different Iowa than Anna. When Anna arrived in Iowa, um, Iowa had like two major like removal like projects of the prairie. It originally, it was about 87% prairie. Uh, and prior to Anna, like pre-Anna, uh, is how I think of it. Um, there was like one major sweep of removal because everyone was uh, colonizing the space basically. When she arrived, it was about 57, 56% prairie. And in my lifetime, it's less than 0.1% uh, prairie, like 0.1, not even a full percent. Um, and that's not even 140 years of time to eradicate several millennia of biodiverse prairie systems. Um, and so the 100 days has kind of become this documentation of my matrilineal line and the strange and complex intergenerational trauma of the women in my family and these desperate attempts to make good and how that system that they are products of is the same system that completely eradicated and destroyed the prairie in my home state and how those lines of convergence seem kind of separate but they are not at all they're the same system and the privileges of my family to be able to do that is predicated on mass violence, right? And land use and abuse and genocide. Um, but though it, that's the same system of exploitation and it's the same system of like make good and be productive at any cost um, in order to make good, but like no one really makes good at the end of the day because it leaves destruction and abuse at the end. So it's turned into that. Um, it starts again on January 1st, and I'm going to be documenting uh, basically the production of the next 
um, huge projects that are about that research. That's really deep. <laughs> the I know. Start and yeah, it's, the it's kind of a downer. <laughs> Why? Well, and I, I wish we had more time because there's so many facets of your practice that you could just spend so much time talking about. Um, that it's just fascinating. I, I don't not to hate on all the artists that we've had, but a lot of. <laughs> you're definitely an intellect in the way that you're thinking about work. Like I call myself a conceptual artist and usually I have like a couple lines of this is what my art's about. Um, but you're like, you can tell that you've just thought about this and you let the process develop to the point where then it lends itself to more. And it's just very interesting. You almost need a whiteboard. Hey. like lines yeah it's like that meme of the guy with the cigarette hanging out of his mouth and he's like pointing to like all these intersecting like bubbles with <laughs> the line like that's me talking about my work 100%. which is really interesting it's so fascinating Thank um you. I, I have so many questions for you that I don't know where to start and we're almost at time <laughs> so I'm gonna let Samuel to ask a question so I have a question oh. <laughs> just one when you how do you feel personally because you kind of talked about it a little bit but do you I know you talked about how you wouldn't get along or like you two wouldn't see eye to eye yeah um, do you think that if this is because she sounds like a strong woman if she was born today would she have the same ideas that are from the past or would she have more of your mindset um I don't know the thing about research like this and gathering stories from all of the women who are still alive who knew Anna personally um, is that she is a hundred percent. The reason that she is, she was so hard. I talk about her in present tense because I'm thinking about her all the time. Um, but part of the reason that she was the way that she was is because of the really painful background that she came from. She immigrated to the United States because her father was a stonebreaker. And there's evidence of um, like documented evidence of him receiving welfare because he was so poor. Being a stonebreaker in the 1880s was like the lowest like labor position you could hold. Mm -hmm. um, it's not educated labor. It's 100% just like working and working and working. Um, and a lot of the things that I think about with her and about people in general is like when you learn about the really horrific things that have happened to them it doesn't excuse their really horrible behavior but it makes sense and um there the number of stories I've been told about her being sold to her neighbors at the age of four as like cheap labor to collect like goose eggs and being alone to go and do that and being knocked down by geese and having 
like wings beating against her and just absolutely beating her up to like to a pulp as like a four-year-old and her screaming for her mother and no one coming. And then I hear about how she exploited all of her cousins and um, nephews and nieces as an older person, uh, as cheap labor. I'm like, well, I, I, I don't well, think she that knows. it's yeah. <laughs> like, it, like you, you do what you know. And I don't know. I mean, I, I think the reason that she was the way she was is because she lived in a time where you could really easily get away with that kind of stuff. And she was, had that done to her. And so she just kind of continued to do it um, because that's what you did. But I don't know. I think if she was, I would, I would pray that if she was around today, she would be someone who understands why behavior like that is not acceptable mostly because I don't think she would have had those things happen to her, mm -hmm. but, but I don't know. I mean, her mother was her, I think her mother or her grandmother was alive at the same time as like Søren Kierkegaard in the same area of Denmark. So clearly not everyone had those thoughts and ideas at that time. So I can't really say she's just a product of her time, mm -hmm. but, um, but again, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to, like suspend someone out of their time period, I think. Exactly. What about, um, so you've talked about having like a Methodist hymn that, mm -hmm. um, are you Methodist? It's complicated. <laughs> um, I, so my family is deeply Lutheran, deeply Danish Lutheran. Um, but my grandfather, my, my grandmother's husband who passed away in 2018, he was uh, born and raised Methodist and converted, but always said he was a Methodist, his lifelong in his heart. Um, and when he passed away, I started attending Methodist services and I'm not baptized and I'm not a Christian, but uh, I love a Methodist service because it's just singing in, in unison. And so much of the Methodist ideology is doing good and being good. Um, and it's really in those services that I, it's only in those services that I have ever felt like there is an actual idea of being good to each other, but also we need to be paying attention to what is happening outside of these walls, because it's not, it doesn't mean anything if you're good in here and you're horrible out there or not helping your neighbor out there. Um, and the Methodist church that I attend right now is definitely the most progressive and strange church I've ever attended. Um, all of the pronouns surrounding God have been um, changed to they, them, or if they are, if the service and the sermon is about um, someone in particular, like, or a group of individuals in particular, like, um, for example, like, trans youth or something, the pronouns for God reflect the people who need to be centered in the conversation. Um, the previous pastor had like a PhD in feminist theory and like liberation politics or something like that. So uh, it's a it's a really it's a really special congregation. I, I will never convert, but mm -hmm. um, but I definitely love going. So this is another kind of a more crazy question. Have you ever thought about getting like a medium and like talking to your 
grandma? I have had that suggested to me. I don't want to talk to her. Okay. <laughs> but because I, and I guess this is why. So I'm mean. Well, no. So, <laughs> She'll say me. <laughs> well, so I'm I'm a lesbian, and I am a young progressive person. Um, I I like I look forward at the same time as looking back. I don't need to talk to someone who I know is homophobic, and I know who is rooted in tradition to the point of like their detriment, and who is not interested in like women becoming even though that's like exactly what she did like she's not interested in that conversation you know or she wouldn't have been she's she's dead but uh <laughs> I, but at the same time too though it's enough for me to look at photos of her in her 70s and 80s and see how kind of frighteningly similar she looks to my grandmother who is still living and how, when I look at photos of my grandmother at the same age I am now, I look frighteningly like her. And like, that's enough for me to be like, that's some spooky kind of witch magic happening right there. That, that is a 140 years is a long time and it is no time at all. And it's interesting to be like, I, I feel connected to her just by looking at photographs of all three of us. And you're planning on going to Denmark, right? Uh, I was reading in like 2022, you have a trip planned? Yeah, so I, uh, so I have, this kind of came out of the fact that I have a solo show in Berlin that keeps moving back and moving back and moving back because of the pandemic. Um, it was originally scheduled in like 2020 and here we are in 2022. <laughs> um, but I am going to the town that my grandmother's grandmother uh, was born in. The church that she was baptized in is still standing. It was like, I think that church was established in like 1146 or something like that. It's one of the oldest uh, standing churches in Denmark or something. And um I'm going there uh, with the help of one of my professors who's going to connect me with some uh, colleagues of his in Copenhagen. Um, it's right outside of Copenhagen uh, to kind of navigate because I, I speak a teeny bit of Danish, but like not enough to get by or and definitely not enough to communicate like, hey, I'm looking for some <laughs> baptism records from 1862. Like, you know, it's not going to work. So uh, I'm going there. And um, the school that Anna attended is now a historical site. And so I'm going to go look at that. And then the area that she grew up in, there's like historical cottages that are like preser preserved, like landmark cottages or something like that. I'm not exactly sure because the website is fully in Danish, um, but I'm going to go and look at those and document that as well. And would this documentation be a part of the 100 Days series? Um, I think it's a continuation of it. The, the reason that it is 100 days is because I am referencing Marilyn Arsum's 100 Ways to Tell Time. Mm. And within 100 days, like how many different ways can I communicate time passing, but also again, looking forward while looking back and uh, seeking something better and looking to the future while also looking over my shoulder and seeing why things are as they are now 
and especially in my own family, which is the microcosm, I suppose, but fully uh, representative of a larger thing. Um, before we let you go, because we've yeah. uh, had you for 40 plus <laughs> minutes and I would just sorry sit I here and talk so to you much. forever. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about your work is because it's durational, mm -hmm. do you have a hard time with people, with viewers, um, understanding your work or like spending that time that your work needs to really understand what the concepts and what you're trying to say is? I, I've had that issue in my own work, so I was very interested in your perspective on that. Yeah, um, I think it's really hard to hold a, an audience captive, I think, for really long periods of time without them feeling burdened by your work, you know? Um, and it's not in like a bad way. They just kind of go like, oh, they look at their watch, they check their phone and they're like, I wanna be here for this, but I need to go and do this other thing. Or I wanna see this work that's happening at the same time and I feel bad. Um, one of the amazing things about my undergraduate um, program was that we had this thing called Vertigo, which was this two hour durational performance night where all of these different performances were happening at the same time um, for multiple hours, some for only 30 minutes, some longer. And it was through that that I started to understand like how audience members really like sit with a performance. Um, and I also learned this really interesting, I don't want to call it a trick because it's not, but like I, something that I use in my practice all the time, which is when you move really slowly and it seems like a lot of time is passing, but not much really is, people sit with you longer. And I don't really need someone to sit with me the whole time to really understand my work. Um, it's in fact preferable to me that they kind of come and come back. Like they go and they are like coming back and they're like, how's it going? And um, to me, I think that's totally fine. Um, it's harder when I have time constraints, like I can only perform for 40 minutes and like I have to make uh, like a beginning, a middle and an end and make it so that each punctuation of those like points of the performance makes it so that they are invested enough to stay for the full 40 minutes. If I'm performing for two hours straight, not much changes. It, there's clearly a beginning, a middle, and an end, but they, they get more time to like kind of come in and out. But um, I don't know. I think there's something about like really moody lighting and kind of singing and moving almost like, it, not. I don't wanna say like in a witchy way, but moving in a way that feels very ceremonial and in a way that like is supposed to be intoxicating. It's really fabulous to sort of cast a net and a spell over people and encourage them to stay. And I always feel really, it always feels really special when people stay with me. Um, and usually I'm so in it that I don't really notice when they come and go. I just know like that there's another presence kind of there watching. So I don't know, I find it very hard though. I find it distracting when people are really loud about their comings and goings. I wish they would just kind of sneak through, but often I think people think that when you're performing, they some for some reason they think like you can't hear them or see them. Yeah. Which is 
really funny to me because I'm like, I'm, I'm right here. <laughs> I'm literally right here. <laughs> I can hear everything you're saying. I can hear you. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. Your commentary is noted. So, yeah. Well, if someone's trying to find you, uh, where's the best place to go? Yeah. So as long as you remember my name, you can find me. Um, my website is www.caitlinmarymargaret.com. My Instagram is Caitlin underscore Mary underscore Margaret. Um, and my email is CaitlinMaryMargaret at gmail.com. So as long as you remember my name, I think you can find me. Yeah. I like the consistency. Yeah. Consistency is key. <laughs> Well, thank you. Um, If you guys are in uh, Miami Beach, um, Saturday, December, shoot, I had it. I'm failing. Fourth. Oh, fourth. Dang it. Saturday, December 4th um, at two o'clock, Caitlin will be performing. um, So you can get tickets online um, to see her. Is it a 45 minute performance or an hour performance? It's mm-hmm. about 40 minutes, I think. So. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much for yeah. spending the time with us. Thank you for letting me uh, talk about many topics. <laughs> I would love to have you on again. I feel like yeah. I'm going to re-listen to this a few times and then have way more questions for you. So if you're, if you're game, I would love Always to have like part two. Next yeah. time. Katie has you. The whiteboard's going to be filled with a whole bunch of different uh, things she's going to ask you. I'll be in. I'll be in my studio, and I'll be like, "Here's a graph. Don't worry." So, yeah, I'm excited to see you perform as well. Are you uh, there the whole week, or? Yeah, and okay. I was like, you know, I've never been to Miami. I I need to go and check it out. I've never been to Art Week, so mm-hmm. I wanted the full experience. Very cool. Well, I look forward to meeting you in person. Samuel's coming with me to help me out. So we'll be, be, the, be there and enjoying Art Week too. So you'll see me in my cool Miss Art World assistant shirt. Lovely. <laughs> Should have got you a little tank top, Samuel, so you could just be rocking the Miami Ooh, vibe. I could. Then we could have bedazzled it. Yes. It would have been great. <laughs> All right. Well, have a great rest of your day. Oh, I forgot about us. Um, (laughs) Oh, thank you always for listening. You can um, listen wherever you find your podcast. You can also, if you want to see us talk to each other in little boxes, check out our YouTube channel at Miss Art World. Uh, We have our Instagram page that is always kept up to date. So check us out. Throw us a follow if you're on there. And uh, also on Facebook too. Anywhere you want to find us, we're probably there, except for TikTok. So don't look for us there. (laughs) Um, You know what? Before we leave, uh, Grandma, since you watch all these and have complaints about how I look half the time, um, I want to know how many times I drink something. So if you want to count that up for me and just send me a, a total count, that'd be great. Grandma will like this episode because uh, our family's from Iowa. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Where does she live? Do you know? Atumwa? Atumwa. Yeah. yeah. So she's out there. So she will very much enjoy this episode. <laughs> Shout out to my Iowans. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
All right. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye.